This episode of Inside Outside is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash insideoutside. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Also, Inspro Insurance. Startups are risky enough, so make sure you're getting the best advice and protecting your company. Give Noah Greenwald a call for all of your startup-focused insurance needs. On this week's episode, we get pretty deep down the UI UX rabbit hole. We discuss the difference in UI and UX and how you can use both principles to build better products. We also sat down with Mark Hemian, co-founder of North Technologies, makers of apps like Watchville and Tiny. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is the podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside of Silicon Valley. My name's Matt Boyd. And I'm Paul Jarrett. And I'm Brian Ardinger. What episode are we on? 12? Is I don't know, but Brian and I have sign language going, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's legit. So uh, I think it's, a, is it episode 12 right now? Well, it depends on how we I've actually lost track. this. We've, We've so done many. two this week. Or yeah, it makes a baker's dozen, babe. <laughs> I don't know. It might be, this one might actually be 11. Yeah. So we're or talking, 12. But we're talking about UI and UX design this week uh, for startups specifically and, and a few things that people can take away when it comes to the designing their products. What do you guys think about the topic? Well, let's first define what UX, UI is, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. So Let it rip. Go ahead. Uh-huh. You're the designer, dude. So a little prequel <laughs> to this, I was listening to both these guys explain what UI UX was, and um, they were both saying it, and then I was like, well, let's not both say what it is, and if you disagree, that's a good thing. Yeah. And yeah. full disclosure, like, I have let's zero... Let's like, hit record, is that what you Yeah, said? I was like, well, let's just hit record right now. <laughs> um, yeah, and I have like zero qualifications right, so, to comment on any of this, so it should be interesting. So uh, I'll define UI design. UI design is the aesthetic pixel pushing uh, yes. of your app or design or whatever you're, you're putting, your landing page. The user interaction. Yeah, so it, it's more uh, centered on the ideology of like, what does this button look like? How does it? How does it look? How is it aesthetically appealing? Is does it match our brand assets? Color schemes, color schemes, and all those kind of things. Uh, and then what, UX, that. I think, obviously, UX stands for user experience, and and it encompasses more than just what you see on the screen. I think it, it, it encompasses how you make that person feel absolutely with interacting with whatever that is, whether it's an app or a um, you know website or whatever. Um, UX, in my mind, it's an intersection of a couple different things. It's the technology that you're using. It's an intersection of the what the user needs. And then I think it has to be, and this is oftentimes overlooked in my opinion, some type of business goal. So you know, the user experience should drive the user needs, how what technology is being used to deploy it, and then finally some type of goal because why are you putting some type of experience together if you don't have a goal for that person to go through in the first place? So I, I had a, a boss one time. <clears throat> explain UX to me um, in a very, very simple term. He he mentioned the word Jugad, and it's J-U-G-A-A-D. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was the acronym? I was, I'm taking notes. Say it, it again. It's, it's spelled J-U-G-A-A-D, and that's not uh, an acronym, really. It's just a, uh, it's actually, if you look it up on Wikipedia, it is a truck that, that people use in, um, I think it's somewhere in the Middle East or something, but um, 
It's basically a truck, and it it is the ugliest thing you ever would see. But these people in these uh, small villages, they put this truck together. Uh, it functions in ex- in the exact way they need it to. It's extremely efficient and cheap, um, and it just works. And he said, like we we were talking, and he said that. And he drilled this into my brain, but that is what UX and product design is fundamentally. It is not the look and feel. This thing right. looks ugly, and right. it can look ugly. It's okay. So wait, did you guys just contradict each other? You're saying that's Jugada is UX. UX. So what would what vehicle would be UI? Um, well, uh, so UI would be something that is uh, extremely overcomplicated, but it looks mm-hmm. beautiful. Maybe it's a. Uh, I want to say like a Mercedes or a Lamborghini, but those also have function. Well, maybe it's yeah. for non-tech people like a Tesla. I've never sat well, in a Tesla, but I imagine there's a lot of they're digital They're not mutually panels. exclusive. I mean, obviously, if, if well, you have something functional, you can also make it look pretty. I guess a Lamborghini would be kind of where UI and UX yeah. inter- intersect, and mm-hmm. both of those things are great. So maybe it's like an airplane. Maybe, With yeah. all the control panels. Yeah, and, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I right now I just like I visualize uh, like a designer with thick black rim glasses and a funny little hat sitting in a Chicago airport listening to this, just going, "God, they're getting it all wrong." <laughs> it's a da da da. I'm sure there's multiple yeah. definitions. So, so I, I used to be a UI UX designer at Zillow. yeah, that's like your jam. Yeah, it's kind of my default position. Yep. Um, but now it's kind of glossed over with a lot of other things. And yep. I, I've got some chops in the dinosaur era. Back when uh, <laughs> the web was first getting started, yeah, I actually yeah. helped put together the first usability lab in Asia mm-hmm. focused on you know some of these early things like how the heck do you use yeah. a website yeah. and, and yeah. how do people interact with the screen to do different things. So. Yep. And this it, is my wife and co-founder, mm-hmm. so she should act. This is what she does, so <laughs> she, she should actually be sitting yes. here. <laughs> so here's a question. Design, I think uh, there are so many different tools and, and options out there for for designers and for people who even aren't designers. That is design something that um, there's no excuse for not having it anymore. Totally. Amen. I, I, so I feel like, um, I, I don't know if this is a Midwest thing, but um, I feel like, when I see presentations or I talk with tech type people, I don't want to pigeonhole a specific type of person, but um, so many times everybody's worried about kind of like how the back end operates and how the back end totally. works. And, and, you know, I will act like I understand all that conversation that's going on, but then the front end comes around and it's kind of like a piece of shit. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it, do, it does it. Unfortunately, if a customer, I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of the times, it's going to be somebody purchasing purchasing the product and mm-hmm. using it. And if it looks like crap, or if somebody yeah. gets frustrated, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Like they don't give a shit about yeah. however it operates or whatever. So I've just I feel like a lot of times, um, and maybe it's just the people that I'm talking to, like that that part is just overlooked or. It's so good on the back end that the expectation is people read a manual to figure out kind of the UI UX. 
This episode is brought to you by Inspro Insurance. We caught up with Noah to hear his thoughts on why a startup needs insurance. Why does a startup need insurance? A startup needs liability insurance to protect its customers. By doing business with people, you are creating potential liabilities for yourselves insofar as they come to rely on you or insofar as you have exposure to their property, their financials, their assets, and by making mistakes through your negligence, you can cause them harm. Good example would be by selling a service to a financial institution, the financial institution may come to rely on you. And by making a mistake and just simply in the process of coding your software, it could create a huge harm for the financial institution. In working with customer information, you take on a responsibility to protect that customer information, not only from destruction, but also from exposure to the, to the rest of the world. In the event that you somehow make a mistake or are otherwise compromised by no fault of your own, there's a good chance that you're going to incur liability as well as there's a good chance that your customer is going to, going to experience some damage, financial damage or otherwise. And carrying one of many types of liability insurance, general liability, media liability, professional liability, or cyber liability, all will help protect your customers and thus make sure that it, in the event of the worst happening that your company isn't wiped out and theirs isn't, isn't as well. And by protecting your customers, you are protecting your company. Since uh, since Brad Feld's going to be coming on the show next week, we want you to grab one of his books, Do More Faster, on audible.com. Wait, are we getting money for audible.com? Unless they're sponsoring, we should not <laughs> say that. Audible.com and Little Inside Outside podcast, it's a thing? It's a thing. Yes, oh, audible. damn. If you don't like Do More Faster, you can get startup communities. Hop, hop, hop. Look at us. <laughs> cool. Right, well, sorry, continue with the podcast. I, I was That was just a thing I was curious about. <laughs> yes, Audible. Check out audibletrial.com slash inside outside for your free audiobook. Now let's get back into the discussion. All I, I think not all effort, but m- most effort should be spent on the front end. Uh, that is what people see. That is the professionalism of your yeah. brand. It's table stakes that it, you have to have. Absolutely. And it, it it affects conversion. Like if I go to a crappy website, yeah. I'm not going to buy. Like if it makes me feel shady like or it makes me feel like, oh, these people are like, yep. you know, the design of this actually affects like how I perceive this brand. Like yeah. most people are just going to leave. Yep. Um, and that's what pe- a lot of people don't understand. They, they think that like. The secret sauce is in the back end, but but ideally, I, and I'm going to get a lot of crap for this, <laughs> but people don't care about the code. Right. Fundamentally, nobody cares about right. your code and it's how great it's written. And that, right. It's got to function and right. work, but that's, they, that's they part they of the experience. They don't so if it doesn't work, like, so if you if you have a pretty page and you click on something and it doesn't actually do what you need it to do, that that's fundamentally a problem. Right. The reverse is a problem too. Like you have a ugly website that no one wants to interact with, doesn't get them emotionally totally. tied to or whatever, they're not going to use it either. So both of those make the UX, the you know, the yes. overall experience. So I think you have to have both. But I think a lot of times a lot I think the problem is a lot of people miss one or the other and don't think overall encompassing what am I trying to do? How am I trying to do this? How can I make it both pretty and functional at the same time? The vast majority don't consciously think about the code. And if they do, it's probably a technically minded person. The vast majority of people, they 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 might think, does this look good? They don't probably don't even consciously think it. It's just, does it feel right? Right. right. And if it doesn't work, then it's oh, it's broken. Yeah. Like they they don't think exactly. Yeah. So you lose confidence in it. Going back to the point, though, I think um, great design is now becoming table stakes. I think that if you don't have that, and you get your prototype in front of an investor or uh, even even customers, I think if you look back, 
the difference like B2B software versus B2C software. Back in the day, B2B software, it could be a little ugly and clunky because it was like forced on the employee or mm-hmm. it, it right. serves such a right. pain problem mm-hmm. point where, you know, it's, well, I've got to get this inventory entered in, so I'll yeah. put up with a crappy interface. Yeah. Nowadays, B2B software is, is you know, people are being um, taught on B2C software. <laughs> and yep. so they, the table stakes have raised well, and, and the, the design has to be that much better at a, in a B2B uh, functionality as well as And, and looking content. at it, looking at it from the perspective of like the, the resources that are available now for designers to produce great yes. design and, and the precedent that is set for mm-hmm. great design today mm-hmm. is very, very high. Um, you know, I remember when I first started designing the only site that had any, any design resources or precedent for this kind of design was deviant art. Yeah. Um, and deviant art was like the thing that everybody looked at. And now uh, Dribble, like Dribble is a site dedicated to great design. Yep. Um, even Pinterest, like Pinterest, if you go on Pinterest and type UI, mm-hmm. there are collections galore that you could find. Yeah. It's um, almost becoming a problem where that now you can find really great design and almost everything is looking similar. <laughs> so you almost have to yeah, go that fine line of like, you see oh, those, those make, trends, right? Like, make it, yeah, differentiated yep. enough and, and use the stuff that actually, again, affects the UX more than just the design see, aspect yeah, of it. I kind of think that if you fall into one of those trends, that's actually okay on the aesthetic side as long as your UX is well yeah. thought out. And that's something that there's no trend for because every business has a diff- fundamentally different UX. Well, and every new technology is going to change that. So, I mean, you and I, Paul, got Apple Watches and and how a person interacts with an app um, on a watch. Totally different. Totally different. And and you're seeing that now. So you're seeing these um, apps that are being ported to the watch. And it's interesting to watch how different companies are are approaching that problem and and what they're pushing to the watch and and what's the real use case scenario on a watch versus the phone versus something else. So I think, you know, UX, UI, all that stuff evolves as technology changes, as business rules change, as design standards change. Yeah. One thing that uh, designers always ask me and people who are getting into design always ask me is like, uh, what tools should I be using um, and and how do I design most efficiently? Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say number one is you should embrace whiteboard and pen and paper. There, there is no old school, old school yeah. like pen and paper. There is no replacement. Yep. And if you want to get a little bit more technical, but but stay in the wireframing uh, space, Balsamic is a great tool. Um, I think like a lot of people think that I'm just going to start pushing pixels. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is, <laughs> what you end up doing is you spend so much time on the pixel pushing thing that you uh. forget the UX. So what you need to do is actually disconnect yourself from the look and feel of the thing first and just strictly think about the structure and how it how it psychologically feels. And the best way to do that is spend the majority of your time in balsamic or in wireframing just by, by hand. I, I have notebooks that I just sketch yeah. UI out. I, th- I think a lot of people, too, um, should take some time and look at similar, not apps, but like functionalities within apps. Totally. Like It's, it's shocking to me mm-hmm. how many times... You know, um, if you just have an app where you want everybody to like upload their contact list, like download a dozen apps and watch how they do it. Yeah. And download some of the best apps, some of the newest apps, and see how they do it. Take some screenshots and, you know, pull the best things from Mm -hmm. like the, I don't know, and maybe I'm going to sound old, but like, you know, a decade ago or, you know, you've, 
even longer than a decade ago, like none of that was on, on you know, none of that was available. Yeah, you yeah, were just, yes. <laughs> you know, and I can't imagine what it was like before that time. And now there's just so much information out there. And if there's something that you don't know, like lynda.com is a great resource for totally. learning. So, but that kind of applies to anything. Like I, I, I get frustrated with anybody that isn't looking at the best items out there, whether it's design, business plan, pitches, et cetera. I'm like, you ask like it's all online yeah yeah. you know and and so go learn online and then if by example you can't learn there's so many resources out there where you can walk through things and read a damn book yeah yeah. you shouldn't put a design element in just to put a design element you shouldn't put an animation in a powerpoint slide because you can put an animation in a powerpoint slide here's an example so back in the day i was doing usability testing for moet chandon i don't speak french but the the champagne brand back in hong kong and this was the early days where they were trying to again they were overthinking what they were trying to do so and obviously the the developer got involved and so they were on the home screen, they had a, a cork, an animated cork bouncing up and down on Moet Chandon's website. Hell yeah, they did. What is that, exactly. about 94? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, but, yeah. but the question was, okay, so why the hell are you putting a bouncing cork just because you can? Does it you know, get you to the business goal? Does yeah. it do anything else? Uh, so from a design element, again, don't do it just because you can or because you've seen other people put bouncing animations on, your, on their page. That's... Right. Yeah, that's where you get into problems. And for the longest time, we, we saw design uh, in the UI world as um, kind of taking uh, skew. So there's, there's a term called skeuomorphic design, which is basically the idea of taking real things and trying mm, to put right. them in a digital sense. Right. So, uh, for example, a, a skeuomorphic design would be like, you know, in the old school iPhone where uh, you would look at the notes app and it would show like it would look like a piece of paper. Right. Then was crumpled up at the top, and it would just be it would be representing like a physical piece of paper, but yeah. in a digital sense. Yep. And that was the the trend for the longest time, yeah, where yeah. Pe- people used to try to make like mm-hmm. textures that would emulate like a real button, a, a real button, and all yep. those kind of things. I've been a, a part of a few of those projects. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And you know that was a big thing. And then now all of a sudden we're kind of shifting toward flat design. Yep. Uh, you know, not emulating real world things, but just kind of conceptual. Uh, but I, but I also think skeuomorphic design comes into like the UX and product design side of things, where people try to take these corks and put them on a screen because <laughs> they feel like in real life there might be a cork here. Yeah. But that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> like they, like think about why it's there. Think about you know uh, fundamentally if it benefits the user and not just an element on a page for no reason. Hey, so let's jump into some tools and some tips and things that we've used uh, as far as design or, or things that people can take advantage of to move their project along. Let's do it. Um, I think, Matt, you had a good point with good old paper and pen. Yeah. Um, having a background for a very long time in advertising agencies, I always found myself doing that same thing, sketching things up. Um, but what I found actually a lot of, um, and, and I still do this, and I think people should do this more, that when you're working on a project, paper to pen is great. But also, I use different color pens for hmm. like Ooh, subjective idea. ideas versus um, things that need to be changes versus errors. So I always kind of, uh, you know, and actually my co-founder now just like knows the colors by heart. Um, like and that. it's it's a lot of like me as somebody that's not a designer working on a project, I need to be very specific on, is this just a subjective thought? 
is this something that has to be changed? Um, or is this like actual error in which like, you know, they don't know? And so we talk a lot about that at, at, um, our company of like define, you know, your opinion, your thoughts, your subjectiveness versus like, does it have to be done? Um, and I think that actually removes like 80% of the frustrations between designers and project managers is they just, you know, what the, what the project manager is trying to say is like, Hey, I have this idea. I have this thought. Take it and run with it if you want. If not, just kill it. Like I just wanted you to know what I saw, and you know they just want like a nod of the head. They just want to know that they were heard. Um, and I think Linda is just a great resource. Um, totally. If if you sink your time into it and use it, so I'd say good old fashioned paper and pen, moleskin, my fave. Yeah. Good set of markers, different colors, and define what those things are. And uh, Linda. Yeah. So what if you want to get a step up? Um, you don't know Photoshop, and that there's obviously these pre-made tools and templates that you can turn to whether it's something like canva where it's not going to be great design in that but it's going to get the job done for you know 80 percent of the things that you need to do Canva's pretty good actually yeah i'm pretty impressed with with canva what what does canva do uh, so base, it's basically a photoshop for non-photoshop people so it gives Mm -hmm. you templates um it then allows you to you know type in text and that and change the font and and but it's all it's a web songs they might actually, yeah. So if they don't, I'm not interested. If, or papyrus. <laughs> if you don't use Comic Sans in your daily design life, once. then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Forget this Helvetica crap. Uh, but okay, so step up from Canva, um, Sketch. I know that you use that quite a bit, yeah. Matt. As far as uh, it's a Mac app, but it's it's a little less complicated to learn. Sketch. 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 Sketch is different, but Sketch is also Sketch a good, is actually a really good, good tool, tool as well. well. Yeah. Uh, Buffer. You know, Buffer, they just released a new Pablo. Pablo. Um, so this this is basically for social media. Let's say you want to do a, a tweet and have an image in there or a Facebook uh, post with some type of image and you want to put a quote over it or something along those lines. It makes it super dead simple. You know, you type in the, the sentence, it then stylizes it for you. You can pick from background images that they have, you know, digital rights to and things along those lines that make it simple to, again, pump out content that looks that has an image with it where you don't have to be a designer to make it look somewhat decent. Nice. I want a hot or not for startup product names or just startup names. <laughs> Somebody Pablo, build that. Somebody Buffalo. That. Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid hot if I not. put half the names that I've come up with, they would fail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Twitter would have failed, right. I'm sure. Yeah. What's yours, Matt? Um, so I'll kind of give you the the uh, overview of just my design stack. Uh, again, first, it, it always starts with pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Um, when I get a few solid ideas down on pen on paper, um, I'll escalate it up to balsamic and just kind of get more uh, solidified. And then from balsamic, I will always take it into sketch. I used to use Photoshop for, and if you use Photoshop, that's okay. Photoshop is just a an app fundamentally designed for photos. And nobody's ever thought like <laughs> it, it's it, it's kind of obvious now, but like when Sketch came out, like everybody was like, "Oh yeah, Photoshop isn't for UI design; <laughs> it's for photos." I think some people still need to be told that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, Photoshop, you know, it's it's an app that you know we've been hacking as a UI tool mm-hmm. for ten years, um, and I, the majority of my skill set was built on Photoshop, and wow. I love it. But it's it's now it's it's becoming to where it's just so heavy and clunky. Um, where Sketch is the lightweight app designed specifically for UI design. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it allows for much quicker, like I can put out a mock-up 10 times faster with Sketch 
than I can with Photoshop just because of the tools built in. Well, I think you were, you were giving me an example yesterday. You were working with one of the teams, and, and just to get to the selection of a, a line of text, it took like three clicks in Photoshop versus one in, in Sketch. Exactly. And that kind but, of stuff. And, and but you could obviously do a lot flashbacks. more. I'm having Photoshop. flashbacks to my ad agency <laughs> yeah. days when somebody would design in all Photoshop, yeah. and then they would give it to me, which I had you know a piece of sh- Mac and just <laughs> click on something and I could go get coffee and come back and it's still loading like yeah ah. yeah and yeah, uh, designers don't forget sometimes the people you work with don't have supercomputers yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or good eyesight for yeah and save them a damn PDF for the make, love of it make my font a little bigger please yeah yeah and, and I use a lot like if I'm doing um something on the for iPhone design or whatever um, there's a lot of really good packs ui packs yeah. out there mm-hmm. that you can actually just kind of mix and match like t i think it's tian and lax uh they have a basically they and they've been doing this since the iphone came out but it's a library of mm-hmm. all ui design elements on the entire uh iphone library yes yeah, which is amazing sketch oh. app resources.com again yeah there's, there's probably 20 different versions of these things out there on the web just kind of search and google for it but a lot of the design work's been done for you especially at the early stage and again it, it may not get you to where you're having a functional app but it may get you enough to get a mock-up to get in front of people yeah. to get you know, do some user testing things along those lines without having to actually design or code or build it all yourself yeah and then um i would say the last part of it is uh just html and css so if i have any any tweaks sometimes it's just easier to uh tweak it up in in the actual raw css mm-hmm or use t- tools like Envision or, or Pop uh, Prototype on Paper, which, again, you can prototype these types of apps now that look like it's a functioning app. Right. Uh, it doesn't have the back end and everything else, but it, to a user, if you want to get something in front of a person to say, hey, you know, pretend to use this thing, uh, oftentimes you can't tell. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, to the developers out there, too, like... Duh. I, I feel like a lot of developers will show me stuff like in a portfolio or whatever, and they say, "Oh, but I'm not a designer." Like, stop saying that. Yeah. Like, yeah. like mm-hmm. you, if you could learn code, you can learn some of the fundamentals of design, and don't even that whole like almost apologizing for your work before you show it. I think the developers, the person that you know wrote the code and created it from scratch, actually probably has the best shot at making the great design. Yeah. Um, so you know, use those tools and don't discredit yourself before you actually you know rule something out. That's a great point. I mean, I think the collaboration between designers and developers has to be super tight. And so I think it's it's very beneficial for designers to learn some code and coders to learn some design. They're not necessarily necessarily they're going to be the ones doing that front or back end development, but to have more empathy for what the other side is yeah, doing. Yeah, and I feel I feel like we have to take a minute to talk about. Um, you know, over a decade ago, graphic designers were like all the rage, and you could work anywhere and get yeah. a really good job and and whatever. And I feel like there were people that never moved out of that kind of print <laughs> mentality of graphic design. Yeah. Um, as a designer, um, as a graphic designer, if I want to make it and and have a job that's you know well paid that I can actually live off of, what are some of the tools that I should be using? Because I feel like a lot of people are coming out of the university or any college or whatever, um, and they were you know they're taught in this kind of print um, design era, which is great for fundamentals, but. Um, I think those jobs are now few and far between, um, and it's going to continue to be that way. So what are some of the things that those people can be doing right now, or what should they be doing, or am I just incorrect? I think you're absolutely right. Um, 
print design, I think, is still a thing. It's just not as valuable as it used to be. Um, UI design is um, is fundamentally, I think, one of the most valuable positions in an entire company these days. So I think um, I think that there's a lot of stuff that you could be studying. I like that idea of just like learning some code and understanding like where things are coming from. Right. Um, but I don't know. I just I've seen too many great, great, great designers not take time to you know, understand kind of digital uh, user interface design. And on the flip, I've seen some amazing print designers make that leap and they're actually some of the best mm-hmm. UX, UI people yeah. out there. It's a matter of not them not having the execute, execution chops to, to use the tools or is it... I think it's probably inner dialogue. Like they just mm-hmm. tell themselves like, oh, I can't do it. Like that's not what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think of, uh, no, I'll name names, Justin Kemmerling. Um, one of the like most amazing designers around, and in my humble opinion, um, does great like poster art, does great apparel or whatever. Um, he's made an incredible, in my opinion, leap into um, design. And if you just go to his website and check out what he does, it's like holy shit! Like talk about somebody that can transition between different uh, mediums, if physical you will. medium to the digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is. It, I mean, it is fundamentally different. So, uh, you know, I've done a lot of print design as well, and it is a just a different monster where you're, you're dealing with different resolutions. You don't have to mm-hmm. worry as much about calls to action. I mean, all of these kind of things, like, you don't, you, there's no buttons. Like, you're not dealing with any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You're worrying about type design more. Yeah. Um, so I think that I, I would recommend that somebody who is thinking about transitioning from print design to UI design to just study great UI. Mm-hmm. Just sit and look at it understand recreate it take a design yeah. try to recreate it um, think about the padding think about the margins think about the composition and how it's different in you know a, a poster or something along those yep. lines and the best way to do that is uh, again on uh, dribble with three b's and pinterest yeah. i think and go I take the, that little voice in your head out back and get rid of them i think yeah. there's also an opportunity because again look at social media social media used to be you know you could type into Twitter your 140 characters, but now there's a visual element to it. And people, you know, when they're scanning their stream on Facebook or whatever, they're looking at the visuals are what are grabbing them. Oh, it them. is. Yeah, so, that's it. And so that's becoming more and more of yeah. a thing. So it's not only that you have to learn it to design a website, yeah. but you, as a, like as a marketer, you better be able to use some of these yeah. tools and create some of this content or you're going to be stuck yeah. having a, a team of folks doing this for you and that's not yeah. necessarily effective uh, or, you know. I hear sometimes people talking. I'm like, "Oh, you're right. If this was 1994, <laughs> or or even like you're correct if this was 2000 or 2010." But guess what? Like yeah, a big moving. shiny button that has no words or anything like that. That is where we're at right now. Yeah. So let's just kind of sum up the conversation. Uh, UI UX. What do you guys in in a very quick form? What do you guys think about that? Well, I think again, going back to what we originally talked about, UX is so important. The, the whole overall experience. It's got to take into consideration the technology the design elements, what the user goals are, and, and what the user needs to create that ultimate feel of how they interact with your product, your company, your brand, etc. Think about the user first. Um, uh, in that interaction, yes, the code has to work, but you know, think about how you want them interacting. And then also I keep just coming back to this like collaboration between you know, the, the developer, the designer, and the project manager. I think that's crucial because if at any time anybody doesn't feel like they can uh, work together or be heard or make suggestions, that's usually when things 
things start to get a little bit crappy. You want collaboration and iteration after iteration after iteration. Yeah, I think um, embrace pen and paper. I think spend the majority of your time thinking about the structure of the app or, or site and not the, the aesthetics of the site. The aesthetics will pop into place whenever they're ready. But think about the position of the button and the psychology of the button and how, how it feels to the user. My name is Mark Hemian. Uh, I am co-founder of a company called North Technologies, along with another young gentleman named Kevin Rose. And uh, we're a startup based out of San Francisco, but our team is distributed all across the country, actually. So I'm in Southern California, and we have an engineer, uh, Jonathan Baker, in Virginia, uh, Ryan Lefebvre. He has like a French last name. Sorry, Ryan. I don't, I don't know. I always script your last name, bro. He's in South Carolina. And then uh, Caleb Davenport, who's in San Francisco as well. And uh, we work on Slack mostly, uh, Google Hangouts, whatever. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm up to right now. Well, we want to talk to you about early founders and like, how did you become an entrepreneur in the first place? My first job in college, I worked at a speech recognition company called Phonics. And I, uh, it's funny because like I, I, as I mentioned earlier today in, uh, at Big Omaha, I was an accounting major, but I hated it. And, but I kept doing web design on the side and I got this job at this company in Utah, uh, where I was going to school and I did everything for them on the, uh, you know, design, coding, I mean, everything. I didn't even know like that was even a thing. And, uh, even after I graduated college, they were the they really were the only people to offer me a job. So I went and worked there. Um, but it was, this was kind of an interesting time. We raised $150 million, blew through, blew through that money. And, uh, then 2011 hit or 2000, I'm sorry, nine 11 hit. Everything fell apart. We actually, the company did go public, but it ended up on the penny stocks. I, I, I I made $8,000 on my stock at that company. I rode that wave up and down. Yeah, I rode that wave up and down. It was terrible, but I learned a ton. And, um, you know, it's back when we were like doing web pages in HTML, writing Perl through CGI bins and all that fun stuff. But, um, that it's funny because after the, after the nine 11 hit in 2001 hit and the ground flop, I thought for sure internet was done. Like I was like, Oh, tech's done. And so it did. But like that's, I moved to California right after that. Cause I got a job running this skilled nursing facility. I was like, forget it. I'm not doing tech again. Like that was painful. Like that hurt. I got punched in the face because we would work. We wouldn't get paid. You know, we'd go months without getting paid. And you know, a lot of people have very similar stories. And, uh, but again, there was no stack overflow back then. There was nothing, man. There was wet, there was grease monkey, web monkey. What was it? Webmonkey.com. I don't remember. You know, you remember? And you know, like we were just figuring stuff out. It was killer. Just like hacking away at stuff. And I, I was doing it cause I enjoyed it. And I actually, someone wanted to pay me to do it. So I was like, all right, I did take a summer internship though. I took a break and went to PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was in San Jose, did the consulting thing. Cause you know, I was in an accounting information system school and they, Loved, you know, PwC, Arthur Anderson, those guys loved us. So I tried the business consulting thing for a while. Just terrible. I hated it. It was so. Why, why was it? Why did you I mean, that? well, first of all, it's like totally unjust. They paid me 18 <laughs> bucks an hour and they billed me like, I think, like 190 or 200 bucks an hour. But secondly, they weren't that technically advanced. Like, I got there, I ended up writing Visual Basic on top of Access databases. And I just remember being so let down. I thought for sure I was going to go to San Jose, I was going to learn real stuff. I mean, I I knew, at least at the time, I knew Oracle was a much more robust solution. And I was writing tax software for like Hewlett Packard and Nike and Ricoh. And I was like, 
how can we like actually be doing this and feel good about this? Like, yeah. and I'm like looking around and it turns out I'm this young idiot from college. I was doing like a majority of the stuff and you know, and everyone else was like just talking big game and selling yeah. product and, you know, the partner would roll up in his Porsche Boxster. And I was like, dude, if you're going to buy a Porsche, I'm going to buy a Boxster. <laughs> like that's like the poor man's Porsche, man. Like give me a break. And so it felt really fake to me, really phony. I know that there are a lot of business consultants who are, who are authentic and do a really great job. I, I didn't hated it, man. It wasn't for me. So what was the first startup that you put your first shingle out and said, I'm going to do this on my own and, and make it happen? Well, I didn't. It took me a while to get there. The, the next startup after that was actually called Medsphere. Without going into too much detail, it was really just more employee number one. Um, and then the next two startups where I actually had ownership and, and called and considered myself a co-founder, there's two that we did. One was called Design by Humans. Another one was called T-Fury. Both T-shirt based, both very much a threadless model. And uh, you know, users would submit their designs, we would turn them into T-shirts. T-Fury, we sold, Design by Humans got sold. T-Fury is alive and well today. It does really quite well. But, you know, when I, um, and I, and I was the only designer, did a lot of the code actually too, T-Fury, man, I wrote a lot of that in PHP and MySQL. Terrible coder. Like you could like hack our, I think they fixed it now. But what happened was um, with both of those companies, you know, we did those in 2007, 2008, 2009. You know, we got to a point where we kind of ran out of money. We had a lot of inventory. It was doing okay, but not great. And I needed money, man. I just, you know, I had blown through my savings. My wife and I had a house that we had bought in 2006. It was way too expensive for us. So we got to a point where we were had a ton of credit card debt. We were paying our mortgage on it. It was terrible. Like, it was like super depressing. And I sold my ownership in both of those startups back to my partners because I needed money. And I sold it both probably for like 15 grand, I think, at the time. It was enough to like pay some stuff off and, uh, and move us up to San Francisco. And I took a job with a company called Dig, which I think is really, you know, I, I just, there was, I mean, honestly, like, uh, I had, I had heard of that job through the grapevine and I kind of just like, I was like, forget it. I'm not doing startups anymore. I'm going to go do this. Cause like when you're doing startups, I mean, again, especially when you're a co-founder, if there's no money, you don't pay yourself. Right. And I just had been so bitten by like, you know, we'd gone into so much debt trying to build these two things. I just like, I didn't see the point. Like it was really, it was really a bummer, but it turned out that was probably the best decision I ever made because, uh, um, when I went up there, well, first of all, so and by the way, selling that T-Fury stock was stupid. It's doing so good right now. Dude, they're killing it. But was but when I moved up to Dig, we had no money, man. And I, like, I didn't know where to live. We bought, we rented a house in Lafayette. It had no heat. So my whole family would sleep in the same bed. Like, we'd see our breath at night. Because, like, you know, I'd, like, go to the ATM. No idea if I had enough money to get on the stupid bar train. Yeah. Even though I was making good money, like, yeah. Dig paid well. But, you know, you're just, I was, my wife doesn't work. And so I'm working at Dig, and it was cool. And uh, my, my, uh, my good friend, I met this guy, Kurt Wilms, there. And he, he pings me one night. He's like, hey, dude, I'm working on this thing. You want to help me? I'm like, yeah, sure. And so Kurt and I started this thing we call, it was called flick like a movie and it, this became i what i consider is like the first like my first startup from the very very beginning because even designed by humans and t fury i partnered with these two other brothers had kind of been going a little bit but flick was mine with kurt and then we brought two other engineers on from dig so it was kurt and i and dov and ron and we built this thing on top of Twitter that let you see uh, what movies were doing, how they were trending. You could log in and see what your friends said about things. It was really fun. 
But we, we built it, but we didn't launch it for like a year. <laughs> and so within that time, um, you know, we'd been in San Francisco. My wife hated it. She's from Hawaii. She's like, can we just please move back? I'm like, sure. I asked Kurt and Ron, and I'm like, we haven't launched. It's like, I don't know. Like, we're a dig. It's so cool. And like, I'm like, fine. Then I'm going back to Orange County. And I got, um, and you know, I got a big, I got a job as a director of user experience at Oakley, the eyewear company and ran, and you know, we are in Oakley, Ray-Ban, Varney, and uh, yeah, not Varney, sorry, Arnay. Arnett. Oh, sorry. Tired. <laughs> Jeez. And, um, long yeah, long day. And so I went down there and, you know, I talked with Kurt and the boys like, guys, when are we going to launch? Like, we're still a dig. If we launch, dig may take it. We just want to wait. I'm like, fine. But I'm a dad. They're not dads. They're not family guys. So like I could never, I always had to do both things at the same time. So real quick, almost done, almost done. And so, um, the, uh, so 2010 in the, in the August of 2010, so like right from, from 20, from 2009 to 2010, I had moved to San Francisco, worked at Dig, done a startup, then moved back to Orange County, working at Oakley. I'm running a team of like 40 people. And in my brain, I'm thinking, this is what I'm doing in the next 10 years. I'll just work at Oakley and just, you know, work on stuff on the side. So we, we launched Flick. And it killed, like, it went crazy. People loved it. And, maybe, and we, we were, it was kind of early days with Twitter where people would spam Twitter. We, we did as well. And it gave us a lot of growth. This is before, anyway. anyway. And I'm, like, within a month, we had people wanting to acquire us. It was so weird, wow. you know? And, it, and we, one of our advisors was Jay Allison. He was the CEO of Dig. And we were telling Jay, 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 is this like normal? He's like, no, this is not normal. <laughs> this is like weird. And we're like, okay. But the co- like, like the companies that wanted to acquire us, like we did not want to work at. Like we were like, that's it's flattering, but we didn't want to work there. So Jay, you know, just happened to mention it at a dinner party, I think, to someone who was working at Google and M and A. And in 2010, we still hadn't quite seen the rise of like the Aqua hire. And so you know, we got this offer from Google. To, to acquire us and we were like so flattered all of us would die like none of us like there's no way I can get a job at Google so like I was super stoked to like you know pretty humbled by it and uh, come January 2011 all four of us were working at Google I'm still living in Orange County so I'm flying up on a plane like every week you're with the YouTube team then, right? we're YouTube yeah YouTube acquired us um, really a guy Hunter Walk kind of like started that Hunter's off doing his own fund now he Hunter really was the one who, who kind of spearheaded getting us in and, and I think it was easy we hadn't taken any money we had one investment from Founders Fund for 50 grand we only used a little bit of the money in fact that Founders Fund investment came from our friend Daniel Burka who'd been given like a little hey here's 25 grand to invest in a company we'll match and he was just being nice and, but that's it. We didn't. So it was an easy aqua hire. You know, they're like, oh, here's four people that we need. We need engineers. We need design. And and so it was, I don't know. I think it was easy for us to be acquired. I think when startups take way too much funding, they they get in a weird place. Because, like, there's a lot of companies that will acquire you at 5 to 10 million. There's less at 20 and way less at 100. And, and it becomes very quickly, like, at least if you have, like, three or four engineers and, and me, it's like, it's easy to value that, right? It's easy to say, okay, you're worth this much in salary. Here's some incentive like cash up front and stock to kind of keep you around. You're not retiring on it, but damn, it sure, sure is great. Um, and so we did that and I moved my family back up to San Francisco. <laughs> this time we were a lot smarter. We lived in Los Altos, which is much more of a family friendly area and loved it, man. I was up there for two and a half years until my wife got the itch again. She's like, we gotta go back. And so we moved back down. I kept flying for a little bit 
luckily Google has an office in Irvine, switched down there, but even that drove me crazy. And so I got a little itch and I got an opportunity to work at Google X for a while, so I was flying back up and down. And during this time, Kevin and I had kept in touch and we were working on silly things. We have, we have a silly product. If you look up Kevin Rose Tiny YouTube, you can see the stupid thing that we made that before we made our app called Tiny. Anyway, <laughs> so, so then fast forward to last year, we decided to leave and start North. Uh, and North was very simple. Like, you know, if you look at metrics on startups, if you're a VC fund, the metrics nowadays kind of tell us that one in about 20 will hit. Yeah. So if you have, you know, five million bucks, it's probably good to s- spread that amongst at least 20. One will hit, hopefully, gosh, yeah. unless you're terrible at picking. And so that was our pitch. So like, you know what? Let us raise some money. Give us a chance to build 20 companies over five years, one, one about every four months. And hopefully we can get one to like do something or we're just morons. So it's a combination of a, almost an internal incubation fund. Kind of, yeah. Think tank. Yeah, and I mean, we don't take, a, we have a list, a laundry list of ideas, you know, as long as your leg. Um, the first idea we did, it was called Tiny. The second one was called Watchville. We're working on our third right now. And, you know, we just look at kind of really two things, three things really on, on ideas. Number one is, is what we're building 10 times better than what's out there? Number two, uh, is there actually a market for this, you know, and not, not just like humans who will use it, but actually will be worth a hundred, $200 million. And number three is anyone, does anyone of us like have some domain knowledge here? Like, does anyone actually know this or give a crap about this? Which is why we did the watch thing was kind of weird. Kevin loves watches. And so like, okay, it was 10 X better because there's nothing, you know, and, uh, there's a massive market in the luxury, in the luxury space. So, you know, it fit the criteria. Uh, the first one we did, Tiny, did not. It was not 10 times better than Instagram or anything else. And what happened with Tiny is, like, because it's not 10 times better, users don't switch. The market's there. Photo and video sharing, I mean, it's massive. But we weren't better. And so we don't turn it off. That's it for this episode of Inside Outside. Do you have a question? Hit us up on Twitter at the IO Podcast. Also, be sure and follow this week's guest, Mark Hemming. We really appreciate him for sitting down with us. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, go build something big.